Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website, at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number six in our series of 2019. And today's date is Friday, March the 8th. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. First, I talked to Scarlett Vesper a personal branding expert titled The Human Brand Futurist and the founder of Mrs. V Shift. She'll be talking about how executives, entrepreneurs and small business owners can build unique personal brands that stand out in an age when technology and artificial intelligence is changing business. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Dr Shane Oliver assessing the latest profit reporting season and how Australian businesses are tracking. But first, let's talk to Scarlett Vesper. Uh... Scarlett, you have uh, positioned yourself as a personal branding expert, uh, the human brand futurist. Uh, um, Tell me, how is new technology and artificial intelligence changing careers? It's changing careers because it's putting people on their toes, number one, because something new is here. It's not around the corner. It's actually here. And that means that because artificial intelligence and technology has grown exponentially and actually human growth is quite slow, it's really putting us on our toes to be conscious of what we're doing. Now, in our careers, uh, you know, in, in history it shows that we have a career that we follow and, 
and there may be half of us that do a kind of a portfolio type of career. But now it's really becoming obvious that a lot of us are going to have two or three, four career paths that we're going to follow. So what that, um, actually, funny enough, last night I just did a talk um, to a group of women around this, you know, how to be your best self. And I think that's the crux of when you're thinking about your career in the future is to really what does it look like to be my best self? And because we're in a position where automation is coming, we really have to think about what does that mean for us in our career and how do we have a look at the skill set and our talents and reshape what we're doing to make it work in our job in the future. So how would someone use tech, artificial intelligence and new technology to bring that across? How would, they, how would they promote their brand? Well, it's funny. I mean, there's two sides of that coin. So firstly, how can I get on the bandwagon, bandwagon around AI and move forward? And funnily enough, that's what I'm doing because it's almost like I want to know more about it, so hence I'm going to be doing my own form of AI and uh, in the sense of offering a Mrs B coach or, or a helper assistant. And that's kind of because I want to know what it's like. And funnily enough, when I first heard about assistance, um, I was speaking to a colleague and I, and I said, God, your EA is really, really polite. She said, can I let you in a secret? She's actually an AI. And I was like, What? I said, oh, my God, I have to find out more. And her name's Clara. She's an android that sits in San Fran. And um, I actually tried her for a month. And what was so amazing about using and working with her, (laughs) it's like I felt the preciousness of being human. So the two sides of your question is, firstly, how do I engage in my brand and my business to bring technology in? Well, you you just have to keep going with what you're doing, which is having a look at what's out there, what can help my business grow. There are different formats. A lot of the AI that's available for businesses is quite quite large scale because it's database and machine learning. You really have to have a big business and a big budget to use it. For smaller businesses, it's more about being aware of what's happening out there, I think. I mean, social media is what it is that will continue to grow, but technology is just about being aware on that front. On the other side of the coin, if you're looking to maintain your job and your career inside uh, inside your current role, then you really have to have a look, as I said, is how do I reshape the skills I've got? How do I become more human? And hence why I think, you know, I'm so my role as being a human brand futurist is that I know the future is about really recognising our own humanity. What does that mean? That means that we have to look at what being human means. That is asking the questions, innovation, creative. You know, I think I just listened to something recently talked about one of the businesses talked about a guy who rather than hiring more techies, started hiring more creative people, writers, philosophers, because we're never going to stop asking that question, why? Why are we making the technology? So for EAs, for example, I had one client that I was working with and, and she saw that her role as an EA was going to soon be redundant because everything's going to be automated. So she created a role. She actually got to know what was happening in the business. You have to have that little alert signal out there. You have to now be listening from a different place. What do they need? What can I do? How can I show my value? And she did. She became a culture change, head of culture change. So she went from that position. And I think listening from that way, you have to see how you can really further and have a look at your current skill set and, and be more innovative. So that means you really have to be 
totally across everything that's happening and all the trends that are happening in your area in order to get ahead? Yeah, look, it's it's daunting because our future is faster, let's face it. And, and I had one client saying, look, it's all going really well because we're working together and transformation is happening. She goes, I just want to slow it down. I said, sorry, it's just not going to happen. It's a faster future. How can we thrive in this faster space without having an anxiety attack and feeling that you're missing out on something? The best way is to go, okay, what do I need to focus on? Because otherwise you'll go mad. There's so many areas. Um, I and I think to focus on the key area that you're involved in and also just to be more mindful of what you want. And I know it sounds crazy, but it does come back to that passion and what do I really want in my life and what is going to keep me uh, kind of happy and fulfilled in that space. Um, I work a lot with people really recognising, uh, you know, what's not working, what is working, because as the pressure builds in every industry and anxiety and different mental health issues come up, we really need to know who we are and why we're doing it. And, and I think that is going to become much more prevalent. In fact, I just was reading a paper about from a futurist who was talking about the purpose of coaches, and I don't know about you, but I kept hearing about all these coaches. I was like, why are there so many coaches? Like, it was a bit of a running joke, actually, with a few colleagues. And after reading this paper, I realised why. Because people really will need support in the changing climate out there. So what would be your top tips for people making this transition? My top tips is really is to acknowledge where you are right now. Like, I mean, well, the first actually tip is to build your best self you know, to future-proof yourself. And what does building your best self mean? Why would I do it? And it sounds weird because, of course, you go, of course I'm going to build my best self. But some people are very stuck in their ways because if they actually be better than their colleague or be better than their partner, it's a little bit confronting and they have to be uncomfortable. So firstly, be aware of what you're wanting from your own life. The other tip that I would do is then really focus on your own personal growth and get some strength and confidence. Because, you know, I work with a lot of people who are over 40 and 50 and I know in a career it's very hard for a lot to find a job over that age bracket. And that is now changing. So another tip would be to go rather than, oh, my God, you know, I'm over 50, how am I going to get a job? think, oh, my goodness, I'm over 50. I am so experienced. I have so much to offer and I've done this. I can bring a lot of value to a business and have that confidence rather than thinking that it's a negative. That's another tip. And then the other one is to really, again, focus on your skill set and talent. Reframe it. So you might be doing the same thing all the time. You might go, oh, that's what I do. Have a look outside the square. What stuff that I do that I don't even realise I do it? What stuff that I do every day and I'm not paid for that how can I bring that into the work that I'm doing another part is with social media I'm very much for people buying their URL their own name because businesses come and go but you'll stay there and also with uh, they're saying 40% of jobs will be gone uh, in the next 15 years so really building your own personal brand and profile is important and what's great about that is you can actually build your expertise and showcase what you're good at through that. It's a really authentic way to do it. I love doing this. Yeah, I want to show my events. I want to show my artistry over here. I want to show my innovation and ideas. So really use your own personal brand and social media platform to do that. And then finally, really, it's about, you know, that authentic place. Um, Trust is the new currency along with data. 
So as we know, data is going to rule the world because that's where the money is. But the other thing is trust. If you lose a client's trust, um, if you lose a colleague's trust, it's almost leaves you dead in the water because that is what is going to be the most important thing in the future. So really focus on that. And are you talking about it in your language? How are you using that methodology? So in effect, what you're saying is uh, what we need is greater connectedness. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I believe truly in that competition is gone and collaboration is all that's there because if you start feeling... Uh, closed in certain places, you're going to be cut off. So you have to let go of competition. In fact, I've just opened, uh, I've started a platform, this is the Society, kind of a one-stop shop for resources. And I've even got other people who do branding in there and marketing and video, what I do, because it's not about competition now. It's not about holding on to something that I have. It's about letting go. And recently I just had a, I heard a great talk from the founder and owner of Netflix, and he was talking about his, you know, his life and his ups and downs and what's happened. And he talked about his current uh, work culture. And what he does is everybody knows everything. He said, I haven't had to make a decision in a year. He said it is about giving people responsibility. It's about collaboration. The one thing I don't have and don't want people to have is that voice going in the back of their head, I really don't agree with this, and they're not speaking up. So listening to him was so interesting because to seeing that collaborative space, the openness, the honesty, and, you know, taking responsibility. So it's a different place that leaders are going to have to step into and employers to really embrace that and the connectedness. People will want it, yeah. Well, Scarlett, that all sounds fascinating and it's a whole brave new world and uh, all the best for you. That's fantastic stuff. And now let's talk to economist Shane Oliver. Uh, Well, Shane Oliver... How do you assess the reporting season? The reporting season was a lot better than feared. Don't forget the share market had fallen very sharply into December and, of course, um, anticipating something a lot worse. So the results weren't that bad and that, of course, enabled the share market to rebound through, obviously, through December, but uh, also through February. The share market kept going higher. But if you look beneath the surface, yes, the results weren't as bad as feared. They were sort of okay, but they weren't great. Um, if anything, the overall profit numbers are being held up by the resources side of the economy. There was less uh, companies seeing profit growth from a year ago. In fact, uh, only 59% of companies saw their profits up from a year ago, and that's down from 77% six months ago when the, we saw the August reporting season. Likewise, the number of companies raising their dividends has declined from 77% again six months ago to now only 52%. There were some special dividends in there from a handful of companies like Fortescue and Flight Centre, but in the great scheme of things, there were less companies raising dividends going forward. And the outlook statements were somewhat cautious, uh, reflecting obvious uncertainty and weakness in the domestic economy, particularly around housing and consumer spending. So Overall, when the dust settled, it was an okay reporting season and enabled the share market to continue its recovery. But, you know, there's a huge divergence there between strength in the resources uh, stocks, which is likely to see profit growth this year of around 14%, compared to the rest of the market where profit growth this year, according to the consensus, is currently running around 1%. Um, and that's consistent with uh, weakness in the domestic economy. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, the resources, uh, mining profits went up by something like 4% on the quarter and 26% on the year. And that was uh, quite extraordinary when compared to the non-mining profits. That's right. The strength is in the mining side. 
non-mining side is very weak. In fact, if you strip out the banks, which are a bit softer than they have been, but they're still seeing positive profit growth, if you strip them out, the rest of the market actually is going backwards, <laughs> seeing profits in aggregate decline. So it's the mining side which is keeping us up. And of course, the news there hasn't, uh, or if anything, it's got a little bit better with the iron ore price running around $85 a tonne whereas most analysts' expectations were well below that. So uh, were it not for the mining sector, the uh, profit growth numbers would look a lot weaker. So overall, profits were, um, I mean, excluding finance and mining, profits were broadly flat. Would that, would that be right? Uh, flat to down. Um, I haven't got a, six, uh, a breakdown for the last six months compared to six months ago, but in terms of the progression on a financial year basis, the rest of the market is actually down slightly. Um, if you exclude the uh, resources stocks, the mining stocks, and the uh, the banks. So, uh, what what does that uh, tell us about uh, the shape of the economy? Well, the basic message is one of caution about the, uh, the the state of the economy, and I think that's consistent with the downturn in the housing market. We're now starting to see that looks like it's got quite a bit further to play out. Uh, given that building approvals are well down from where they were a year ago. Uh, the huge construction boom of apartments on the East Coast seems to be slowing down or losing momentum. Yes, there's still a lot of cranes out there, but um, economic growth and profit growth is all about an increase in the number of cranes or, or building activity. And now we're starting to see some of those cranes come down and some of those buildings complete. Um, and of course, related to that, of course, is that uh, the huge surge in supply, tight credit conditions, reduce foreign demand, uncertainty about capital gains tax and negative gearing, all of those things are also putting downwards pressure on property prices in Sydney and Melbourne. And that's going to be another constraint on consumer spending uh, at a time when wages growth is still relatively weak. And this is all showing up in the profit results uh, you know, with domestically exposed companies, obviously facing weakness in two key sectors of the economy, i.e. housing and the consumer. And that would explain why the retail figures in the last profit reporting season was, uh, were pretty dire. That's right. Retailing is certainly struggling. Um, maybe the the um, discretionary side wasn't as weak as feared, so share prices still managed to do okay, but uh, the underlying picture there is still very weak. Um, and I suspect that that will probably continue as house prices continue to fall uh, through this year. Notwithstanding companies like JB Fifi, which actually posted a solid profit. They did. If you go back to the start of the early uh, reporting season, uh, JB Hi-Fi did pretty well. I think Noni B was another one. There's always a few in there which do well because of their particular model or business model, their franchise or their growing market share. It's just like a, you know, a small bank could still do well in this tougher environment because they're growing their market share as well um, and so yeah there'll be always some in there who will manage to do okay and that I guess is the key for many investors in this sort of environment if you're focusing on domestically exposed companies you, you've really got to work a little bit harder to find those companies that will be able to do well despite a tougher environment at a macro level um, and therefore stock picking becomes more important um, as opposed to just sort of uh, waiting for the market to sort of move up and do it for you. And of course, stock picking is never an easy thing to do, but that's uh, obviously in this environment a more important thing. Would it be fair to say that the house price decline, uh, the falling home prices, is actually playing into the market and would have, was actually playing into the company profits? I noticed that, for example, uh, Australian new car sales have fallen quite drastically. That's right. Uh, as house prices come down, you, you have a negative wealth effect. People feel less wealthy and uh, therefore 
uh, they're, they're less inclined to run down their savings. If you take the last five, six, seven years, the savings rate, household savings rate in Australia has fallen from around 9% down to around 3% or thereabouts, and that made up for very weak wages growth and enabled consumer spending to remain reasonable. But that was against the backdrop of very strong house price growth in Sydney and Melbourne. Now that's going into reverse. Um, that will will there'll be less inducement on the part of households to run down their savings anymore. So um, it it sort of flows through to weak uh, spending in the economy, um, and of course uh, car sales are part of that. Um, light goods, uh, electronic goods, those sorts of things. That the, the, the big ticket items are probably the ones most was most vulnerable in this environment. I mean, people will still go to the supermarket um, as they have to, but uh, you know. You know, people might delay buying a new car or delay buying a new washing machine, even though the old one's starting to wear out. Um, so those sorts of things start to slow down, and then that that has an impact on the rest of the economy. I, I mean, you don't want to exaggerate these sorts of things. House prices have gone up and down before. There's some debate about the significance or how strong the wealth effect is, um, but you know, we are starting to see one of the the most significant falls in property prices in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, in Sydney's case, since the early 1980s, and in Melbourne's case, since the early 1990s. Uh, and that that decline is obviously getting a lot of coverage, so people are, people are aware of it, and therefore when they're aware of things, it affects their perceptions uh, much more than the, uh, say, the fall in property prices through the GFC, which was only around 5 to 8% or so. Uh, and it was relatively short-lived, and in the meantime, people were getting checks in the mail and interest rates were being slashed in the process, so it, it had hardly any impact on consumer spending through that period. This time around, it's, it's a lot more significant. Well, given the, the, uh, the state of the property market, uh, given also I noticed this week that uh, ANZ Australian job advertisements were down, which was a, quite a worry, and uh, the lacklustre profit figures, what does that say about the RBA? I mean, will, do you expect the RBA will be cutting rates? Yeah, we think the RBA will cut rates, and we moved to that position um, late last year after some very weak uh, GDP numbers. Since then, the, the economic data has remained soft. Obviously, the jobs figures, notwithstanding the ANZ, but the official employment numbers and unemployment numbers, they've remained fairly solid, fairly, fairly favourable, but most other economic indicators have been pretty messy. Uh, falls in business confidence, you know, housing indicators generally, uh, softish uh, figures for consumer spending, yeah, falls in uh, what they call business conditions, PMIs, the leading indicators of the jobs market, they're starting to soften. So all of these things, I, I think, are consistent with the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates. Uh, at this stage, we're, we're seeing uh, two cuts from later this year, probably starting in August and then another one in November. Um, but I wouldn't rule out an earlier cut from the RBA. Of course, the complication is that uh, next month is the budget. Soon after the budget, they're going to announce the next election, which is probably going to be May the 11th or the 18th. Uh, and I think the Reserve Bank would probably want to avoid easing or changing interest rates in the context of an election unless they had a really good reason. They have done, they have moved rates before in an election in 2007, but they got a bit of criticism for that. Um, so they'd probably prefer to avoid moving in the election. They'd probably also want to see what the budget looks like and also who wins the election and what that means for any sort of fiscal stimulus we might get, tax cuts or spending increases or whatever. 
so that's why we think it's more likely to be a move occurring in the second half of this year rather than uh, before. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to rule out an earlier move if economic data justifies it. The Reserve Bank ultimately will do what it has to do for the economy um, and to ensure it's got confidence that inflation forecasts will be met so or inflation target will be achieved over time. Um, and so it will do whatever's necessary. But our base case is that it'll, the cuts will come sometime later this year. Well, fascinating to watch. And Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. So what's happening in the news? Well, China lowered its economic growth target this year to between 6 and 6.5%, bowing to a deepening slowdown that can't be quickly arrested without aggravating debt levels that are already high. Opening the annual session of China's legislature on Tuesday, Premier Li Keqing laid out plans to fend off risks in the economy and keep the nation's jobless rate steady. Chief among the remedies to prop up growth, increasing deficit spending, launching new tax cuts and other fee reductions for businesses. And most or all US tariffs on China are likely to be listed as part of a trade deal between the world's two largest economies. Talks are now in their final stages. Beijing made clear in a series of recent negotiations with the US that removing the tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese goods from day one was necessary to finalise any deal. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier that the US and China were close to finalising a trade pact. China is offering to lower tariffs on US farm, chemical, auto and other products. Washington is considering removing most sanctions levied against Chinese products since last year. As part of a deal, China is pledging to speed up the timetable for removing foreign ownership limitations on car ventures and to reduce tariffs on imported vehicles. Bloomberg reported on Friday that the US is eyeing a summit between Presidents Trump and Xi as soon as mid-March. And the Reserve Bank of Australia kept Australia's cash rate unchanged at 1.5% in March as expected. And Australia's economy continued to slow in the December quarter. And without population growth, the economy went backwards. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the economy grew by 0.2%, below forecasts for an increase of 0.3%. With the economy decelerating sharply in the second half of the year, growth over the year slowed to 2.3%, below the 2.5% level expected. This was also well below the 2.8% year-ended pace forecast by the RBA just a month ago. With Australian population growth running around 0.4%, per capita GDP went backwards, falling by 0.2%. Combined with a 0.1% decline in the prior quarter, that means Australia has officially entered a per capita recession. A per capita recession has not been seen in Australia since the early 2000s, until now. If there's one big thing that's keeping the economy from officially going backwards, it is population growth. And Australia's current account deficit narrowed to $7.2 billion in the fourth quarter of 2018, from a $10.68 billion gap in the previous quarter. Better than markets expected driven by a larger trade surplus of $8.4 billion, up from $5.8 billion surplus. And Australian new car sales are falling, according to figures from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. The numbers show new car registrations fell to 87,102 in February, down 9.3% on the level of a year earlier. The declines are widespread across most categories and states, and are being led by New South Wales and Victoria. Falling home prices and tighter lending standards are the likely culprits behind recent trends. And the ANZ Australian job advertisements continued to fall, slipping 0.9% in February, down 4.3% over the year. This was the fourth monthly decline in a row. In trend terms, job ads fell by 0.7% over the month and 2.8% on a yearly basis. And company profits 
posted a modest headline rise of 0.8% in the fourth quarter, following a downwardly revised rise of 1.2% in the third quarter. After adjusting for inventory valuations, the result was a little better, with non-financial profits on a GDP basis rising 1.8% on the quarter. Once again, profit growth was held up by the resources sector, with mining profits up a solid 4% for the quarter and 26% for the year. Non-mining profits actually fell in the fourth quarter, down 1%, although this number was weighed down by a reported 27% drop in finance sector profits. Excluding finance and mining, profits were broadly flat. Australian residential building approvals rose 2.5% for the month in January, following an 8.1% decline in December. The improvement was led by a 3.8% increase in unit approvals from an 18.7% fall, while house approvals rose 1.9% from a 1.7% decline. The trend in approvals remained soft though, with approvals falling 3.2% for the month in trend terms and 28.6% year on year. The Treasury has provided no modelling to support Scott Morrison's promise to create 1.25 million jobs over five years. Labor lodged a Freedom of Information request to Treasury seeking all documents and modelling related to the pledge, which the Prime Minister made in January. The Treasury holds no documents within the scope of your request, the Department said in a response, released on Monday. Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen says it's lazy and reckless for the pledge to not be supported by appropriate modelling. But Trade Minister Simon Birmingham says the proof of the pledge is in our policies. The Coalition saw the creation of 1.2 million jobs over the last five and a half years instead of the one million promise, he said. And the Energy Minister has again insisted Australian's emissions are going down when the government's official figures show emissions continue to increase as the government struggles to sell the latest incarnation of its energy policy. In an interview with the ABC program Insiders, Angus Taylor repeatedly stated emissions had decreased by 1%, repeating the line first said by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison that Australia would meet its Paris commitments in a canter. The latest report, released by the Environment Department, looking at emissions between September 2017 and September 2018, showed total emissions in Australia had increased by 0.9%, continuing a pattern of increases over the past five years. And this coincides with a new survey, finding that more than a third of voters support reducing carbon emissions to the levels required by the Paris Climate Change Agreement, while one in four voters support going beyond a 27% reduction by 2013. The YouGov Galaxy survey of 1,027 voters last month, jointly published by the Liberal Party-aligned Menzies Research Centre and Nationals-aligned Page Research Centre, found 17% of voters support pulling out of the Paris Agreement. At the same time, Labor is finalising plans to hit heavy industry, from big manufacturers to liquefied natural gas exporters, with strict carbon emission caps that would work like an emissions trading scheme. The opposition also plans to unveil policy to impose tougher fuel emission standards on the vehicle industry and land clearing restrictions on farmers to make those sectors do their bit towards Labor's aggressive 45% emissions reduction target in the coming weeks as a countdown to the May election continues. And Australia's iron ore queen, Gina Reinhardt, has maintained her spot in an elite list of the world's top 100 billionaires, but she slipped down the ranks to number 75 in 2019, from 69 last year. Still, her current and depleted fortune of US $15.2 billion or $21.5 billion Aussie is nothing to scoff about. And a former National Australia Bank executive has been charged with more than 50 fences relating to an alleged $40 million fraud after she handed herself into police at Surrey Hills Police Station. Rosemary Rogers was Chief of Staff to former NAB boss Andrew Thorburn and his predecessor Cameron Klein. 
Police allege Ms Rogers received $6.6 million in corrupt commissions to continue a contract with an events management company and overpay their invoices. Last Friday, the founder of the human group, Ms Helen Rosamond, was arrested by strike force Nathali and arrested on 56 counts of bribery. Ms Rosamond was arrested at a residence in Potts Point after a multi-year investigation into an alleged procurement scam that saw the bank pay heavily inflated invoices for services to the bank that included executive travel and retreats. Ms Rosamond was also charged with obtaining benefit by deception and attempted fraud in addition to the bribery charges. An Adani Australia's mining chief executive has suggested the company could seek sizable compensation, potentially billions of dollars, from the Queensland Government if its mining leases are cancelled. A state parliamentary committee is hearing evidence in relation to a private member's bill, tabled by the Greens MP Michael Berkman, to ban coal mining in the Galilee Basin. Much of a hearing on Monday morning focused on the potential legal implications of the legislation, which would have the effect of terminating several previously approved mining leases and exploration permits in the untapped resource basin. The bill is unlikely to pass, but the committee hearing has revealed what would be at stake if Adani's Carmichael coal mine ended up in the courts. The Adani Australian Mining Chief Executive, Lucas Dow, told the committee the company had spent $1.4 billion to date on the Carmichael mine and associated rail plans. Clearly, there would be a legal recourse to this, not only to the cost incurred, but also the future profits that would have been foregone as well. So that would be a sizable compensation, he said. And supermarket giant Coles has divested from poker machines by entering into a joint venture with KKR's Australian venue company, which will run Coles Spirit Hotels business in Queensland. Coles is offloading management of its 87 pubs in a $200 million deal with private equity-controlled Australian Venue Co. The Spirits Hotels business runs about 3,000 poker machines. The supermarket giant will set up a 50-50 joint venture with Melbourne-headquartered AVC, which is controlled by KKR and Co., to split the operation of its Spirit Hotels business. Coles will continue to manage 243 liquor retail stores in Queensland and 10 more attached to Spirit Hotels in WA and South Australia, while AVC will pay $200 million for the management of the 87 hotels that comprise Coles' hotel and gaming business. Australian Venue Co. will manage the day-to-day operations of Coles' 87 Spirit Hotels, including about 300 poker machines, and will receive earnings from this business. And the ramifications of AMP's decision to sell its life insurance business in a $3.45 billion deal are filtering through, with S&P downgrading AMP Group and its subsidiaries, including AMP Bank, to A- from A, with a negative outlook. Furthermore, S&P said the credit rating of AMP Group was likely to be downgraded for its current rating of A- following the sale, but would refrain from doing so until it had more clarity about AMP's strategy. And Meyer has swum back into the black, reporting a $38.4 million half-year net profit after significant write-downs drove the department store to a $476 million loss in the crucial December half a year earlier. However, total sales in the six months to January 26 fell 2.8% to $1.67 billion and were down 2.3% on a comparable basis. Its profit margin rose on the back of cost cuts, prioritising private label products, exiting unprofitable products such as furniture and bedding to focus on apparel, beauty and private label goods, and closing dozens of concessions. And Graincore has signed a $350 million deal to sell a unit that operates eight terminals around the country, storing and handling bulk liquid oils, fuels and chemicals for a range of customers. The Australian bulk liquid terminals business will be bought by ANZ Terminals, a privately held company that provides storage terminals in Australia and New Zealand. 
The exit from the business, which was acquired by Gaincourt in 2012 as part of its deal for Gardner Smith, includes a long-term storage agreement that will allow Graincore to continue as a customer for its oil business, while also releasing capital. The business has a combined storage capacity of about 211,000 cubic metres. And a new report by McKinsey Australia has warned that unemployment could spike by up to 2.5% as a result of expected automation of 45% of jobs in Australia. Demand would increase for workers in unpredictable and interactive roles such as nursing, caregiving and sales, but will fall for workers including radiologists, mechanics and legal research assistants. The McKinsey report estimates 3.5 million to 6.5 million full-time equivalent jobs could be affected, with 1.8 million to 5 million workers needing to change professions. It says disruption by industry could range from 16% of jobs in the education sector and up to 33% of jobs in transport. The impact could vary from 21% in city centres to 30% in mining regions, including the Pilbara. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Simon Matter, the CEO of Prime Financial, and he'll share some interesting insights on the opportunities for smaller financial services firms in the wake of the Royal Commission, which has the banks retreating from the wealth management space. And I'll be talking to Comsec economist Craig James about what to expect from the market in the week ahead. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a great week. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.